The memories of this last trip to New York City, I believe, will forever be burned into my brain. The last large gathering I attended prior to COVID-19 was actually at previous Standard H podcast guest Matt Horanek's magazine release party at Bergdorf Goodman. A couple of days prior, I sat down for the following interview, one which took place north of New York City, in a town on the Hudson River that I'd never been to before, which included a subway ride to a train transfer where, quite frankly, I had to ask help from a police officer in order to board the correct departing train. It all worked out, including recording until the absolute last minute when today's guest put on a display of driving back to the train station normally reserved for a track. Thankfully, I ended up making it back for my dinner reservation at the recently opened Torian Yakitori restaurant, which was absolutely delicious and hospitable in only a way the Japanese know how. Perhaps I digress. Today's guest is Bradley Price, who has incidentally always been into cars. As the owner-operator of the watch brand Autodromo, he's found what I believe to be the only legitimate automotive-inspired line of timepieces. I'd not met Bradley prior to our conversation, and it ticked all the boxes and then some. He couldn't have been more gracious with his time, and I thoroughly enjoyed hearing his story. We actually discussed a wide range of topics from Michael Jordan to Ivy League educations and of course some car talk involving BMW 2002s and the complete backstory of his very cool Ferrari 208 Dino GT4. We discussed purpose-built design as well as the proliferation of micro-brands within the watch industry, a world Bradley describes analogous to trees competing for light. It's a really open and honest dialogue that I think you watch nuts will enjoy. Bradley offers a very forthright glimpse into how he began Autodromo and a detailed description of how he began collaborating with the likes of Ford Motor Company. Anyway, not to spoil the whole thing, so let's get to it. I'm your host, Wesley Smith, and you're listening to the Standard Age Podcast. Well, Mr. Bradley Price... Autodromo himself. <laughs> Present. Well, <laughs> welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks um, for coming up here. Yeah, absolutely. It's a really cool space. Um, it's, a, it's like a warehouse. Yeah. But not. Well, the building was originally built in 1925, and it was a... Oh, there goes the train. <laughs> it's right on the train tracks. Yeah. Uh, it, it was a Bible printing factory which is why it has this kind of um, kind of 20s factory building look like an Albert Kahn building that you might see in Detroit, sure. but with these little Gothic details, because I guess that was their little ecclesiastical touch to indicate that it was a Bible printing place. But it's like a very cool, you know, 1920s factory building. Yeah, very cool. Yeah. Now, are you from this area? No, I'm from Chicago area originally. What part of Chicago? From Evanston. Okay. Yeah. So what teams are you loyal to? Baseball, of course, is well, what I'm referring I, to. I'm not really a, a sports fan, but I do like the Cubs very the Cubs. much. I okay. mean, and I, I was lucky because I grew up during the kind of, uh, during the whole Michael Jordan Bulls era. Yeah. That was like my early teen years. Yep. So that was pretty it, it was pretty awesome. Yeah. It felt like you were, because Chicago, obviously it's not, it, it is a big city. It's the, you know, it's the third largest city, but it, I feel like when you were a kid growing up in Chicago and the bulls were winning every, every year and like Michael Jordan was in every commercial, 
it really felt like you were living in like the center of the universe. Oh, I bet. Yeah. Well, I grew it up in great. North Carolina, so I actually remember him playing at Carolina. Really? His last yeah, year yeah. There. Cool. And uh, Jordans were the footwear of choice throughout my childhood. Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah <laughs> so sure. I totally understand. Yeah. Those Bulls Lakers series were, you know, just uh, the pinnacle, frankly. Yeah, I agree. Um, very cool. So then take me through a little bit of your schooling and like where you ended up at college. So I, um, I attended University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. Uh, I spent five years there and I did uh, two different bachelor degrees. So I have a history of art background and an industrial design degree. Oh, very cool. Um, and I feel like I actually use both things uh, a lot um, because the, the history of art, you really learn how to write and how to think about things critically. Um, and then the industrial design degree uh, obviously is the profession that I pursued. So... Um, but I, I learned a lot more, frankly, in the field than I did at, at school in terms of design stuff. Like, I think um, you, you just learn so much more in an actual office environment than, right. than you do in design school. Learn by doing kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. So what were you into as a kid? Were you into cars and watches and stuff then? I was really into cars. Okay. Um, What's your most vivid I've memory? always, always been into cars. Uh, my grandmother used to say I was born with a car in my hand because I would always be carrying around a matchbox car sure when I was like a tiny tot yeah and um it's always been the central passion in my life and I don't know why because it's so old like I it's it's so early in my stage of life that I I can't say where it began where it began or what what happened was your but dad I, a car guy? Or yeah, he, he, he is a car guy. Um, and, but my brother is no interest in cars. So I, you know, who knows what, what happens, but my, yeah, my dad had an old Austin Healey when I was a little kid. So I would say that the Austin Healey probably was the, the origin of it, but you never really know where these things right. come out of. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I was obsessed with that car and I loved riding in it and I loved being around it. And I would love, I loved being in the garage in general and the smell of the garage, you know, and like kind of the gasoline and grass clipping smell of being in the garage. Right. Uh, oh, those are very strong childhood memories for sure. Yeah. That's amazing. Now, what did your dad do for a living? Uh, he was a market research consultant. Okay. So he was doing surveys and other market research about um, mainly the marine industry, actually. So he was doing things related to boat, like uh, pleasure boating. Okay. And like worked for various clients in that industry. Oh, nice. Yeah. Was Lake Michigan obviously a part of that? Uh, not really, because actually the, the, mostly the clients were Japanese companies. Oh, okay. And they wanted to understand the U.S. market. And so he was conducting research to help them understand what American pleasure boat consumers were, were interested in, which is really funny, too, because we didn't own a boat. We were not boating people at all in the family, but he, you know, he had a scientific approach to it, so it, didn't really, it doesn't really matter whether he was personally interested in boating. I mean, he, he did a lot of work in that area. Sure. <laughs> so what was the motivation to go to Ann Arbor, or is it just not Chicago? <laughs> no, I, 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 well, it was like I didn't get into the Ivies, so that was one thing. 
but that that's fine. Whatever. That, like <laughs> now that I'm an adult, I'm like, who cares? gives a rat's ass about that (laughs) but uh, it seemed like a big deal at the time when you're in high school and you're trying to like you know my brother was a very uh very very academically strong student so it was like a real hard act to follow because he was like the valedictorian of his class and he was really just uh brilliant and all the teachers remembered him and then when I came along it was like oh you're you know, so, oh, so that, that, that was why was there was a high bar. There yeah. was a very high bar. So, so where um, did he go? Just curious. He went to Harvard. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, the other and thing he was on the Harvard Law like, Review. <laughs> yeah, sure. Well, you know, it's funny because like now as an adult, I look at the Ivies as nothing more than just like a dynamite way to network <laughs> because. Well, that's that, what I was saying to a friend recently. I think that, okay, I haven't sat and audited their classes, but I, I think that, that, at the end of the day, the benefit of, of having an Ivy League education is having the Ivy League alumni. Con, yeah, the contacts, <laughs> yeah. the classmates you had, the people you lived on your hall, whatever. That's the value that you get out of it more than what... I mean, you, can, you could take all the courses online and not achieve anything because you're not getting the organic... Interpersonal. interpersonal relationships yeah. that you get from living on that campus. Yeah. So I think there's kind of a bit of a bill of goods that it's somehow just like, you know, the classes by themselves are what's the, the from a monetary point of view, like you're, you're paying for this amazing curriculum. And I don't know, I don't think that it can be that much better than other places. So obviously growing up in North Carolina, we have Duke, Carolina, NC State, Wake Forest, all within like two hours of one another. And I remember just being from Raleigh, a lot of people would argue that Duke was harder to get in than Carolina, but Carolina was harder to stay in because the classes and the curriculum were harder. Now, I attended neither one of those. Okay. So uh, I can't really speak to it, and that's not to throw shade at Duke or anything. But I wonder if, you know, the Ivy Leagues or some... Maybe you should ask your brother. How easy was college when he got there? Well, I, he worked very hard. I, I know he he worked really, really hard, and it wasn't easy. And I'm not saying it's easy. Right, right, right. I'm, what I'm saying is that, like, a, a high-level state school that has good program in that particular area, like, the University of Michigan History of Art Department at the time was highly reputed, and... We had actually most of our faculty were from Harvard and from a few other Ivies. And so I, n- I never felt like we were getting a second rate uh, curriculum right. from those people. But at the same time, my roommate wasn't Mark Zuckerberg. So that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. <laughs> so, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, even these days, I mean, Ann Arbor is a phenomenal school, engineering. Yeah, yeah. And no, it's a, it's a really wonderful school. Uh, so many great areas. So what, what was your first car? Uh, my first car was a BMW 2002. Oh, incredible. Yeah. Uh, I had it when I was 17. Um, it was what color? back when they were not very expensive, of course. Um, it was uh, navy blue, like oh, a midnight, midnight blue color. It was really beautiful. And it had a Nardi wheel, too, which was super cool. Because, you know, the stock wheel is terrible looking on those cars. But uh, it had a beautiful Nardi wood wheel that the previous owner had put in. Awesome. Yeah, there's an orange one in my neighborhood. I don't know, like, the color names of that. Well, there's Inca orange, and then there's one other shade of orange I can't remember. And then there's, like, a almost like a limey green one that goes to a Cars and Coffee that I often intend. I feel uh, like in Southern California, you probably see 2002s, like, 
all the time. Yeah, I mean, not, I mean, I wouldn't say all the time, but I mean, maybe that's San Diego versus LA. I don't know. Maybe. Um, but I'm sure they're around for sure. Um, those two are the most common for certain. Um, so what was your first job out of college? Um, so when I graduated, it was 2003 and the, there was actually like a mini recession going on. Right. The which dot com. I, I feel like people don't remember yeah. that, that little blip or whatever, but it was kind of a crappy time to graduate from college. I, w- I was the, talking about this on another podcast. Actually. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I didn't have a job lined up. I, I was applying to various places. And uh, so I actually went back home to Chicago and I like went back into my my room, which was like totally not what I expected to find myself doing. But uh, it was fine. Uh, and and I, I was freelancing in Chicago in various uh, design firms there. Okay. And then I, I was applying for permanent jobs, and I basically, it came down to, I had a job offer at Motorola, and then I had a job offer in New York at the Arnell Group, which was a branding agency. And I was really, really torn because... The Motorola job, Motorola at that time was kind of hot at that time uh, with the with the Razor and all that stuff. And it was like way before the iPhone came out. So that was kind of like a cool studio that you would want to work for. Um, and was that in San Francisco? No, in, in Chicago. Oh, it was in Chicago? Yeah, yeah. Motorola is based in Illinois. So, oh, so they actually had an office out in the suburbs. And then they had a design studio on uh, somewhere like off of Michigan Avenue in downtown Chicago, which is where I... I would have been going back and forth between those two studios. Mm -hmm. And um, it was really, really tempting. But in the end, I chose the job in New York, which was paying less money. Uh, But I chose it because I I wanted to... I don't know. I just didn't want to get siloed into, like, consumer electronics immediately. Sure. Um, And so I ended up working at the Arnell Group, which is... uh, no longer exists, but it was a, it was a agency that it was kind of a boutique advertising and branding agency that was owned by Omnicom group, which is a huge advertising conglomerate. So it was like a sort of a boutique firm that they owned. So what kind of accounts were you on? So the biggest clients were, uh, Pepsi, Reebok, um, DKNY, the, the DKNY brand was created by Arnell. And so was the RBK brand of Reebok. Oh, wow. I didn't um, know that. And um, the new, the current Pepsi branding was done by Arnell shortly, kind of at the end of my time there. I didn't work on it, but I was involved in the project in general, but I didn't work on the logo. Uh, but So they were just like really anti-vowels? Yeah, he hates vowels. <laughs> he thought it was a cool idea to like, he like the RBK thing was he took the Reebok logo and he like scratched out the vowels basically. And he's like, the RBK. And, you know, and it was like, <laughs> but you know, he sold the idea and it like, you know, it, it, it was really good. You know, it, it really rejuvenated the brand actually. Right. Uh, at the it's time. Just so many companies ended up doing that, you know, just like yeah, subtracting yeah, yeah. vowels and calling it a brand. And he was also involved in things like, like the idea, he was the one that had the idea to connect shoe brands with hip hop artists. Yeah. To like on a high, you know, so like, so like the guess, S Carter right? brand was yeah. like something that Peter created with Jay-Z and like made that happen. Um, and that was like, again, is like a brilliant idea. He was like, well, if athletes can have a shoe, like why can't a rapper have a shoe? Like they should totally have a shoe. Now 
people want that. And, and, that, and that was like an idea that, that he pushed and they, you know, created that subgenre basically through, through that idea. So he was really uh, uh, a genius guy, but he was also like a difficult person to work for and uh, the company eventually kind of uh, had a lot of problems. Got it. Now, and what year, how long were you there for? I was there for three and a half years, which is like dog years. Like that's like, tw- that's like 10 years for like, people would quit in six months. So like three and a half years, oh, just, I was, was like a meat grinder. I, other, yeah. Oh yeah. Like, like I was, there was almost nobody left from when I started there when I, when I, when I left. So what do you think about yourself was able to just handle it? Well, I was fortunate for a couple of reasons. One, uh, Peter seemed to like me, so I didn't really, I didn't really get like much crap. So I was kind of under the radar a little. I was also pretty junior, so again, like the the closer you were up to the top level of the company, the higher the pressure and the crazier things were. And so, because I was an entry level employee, I was kind of like out of the fray a little bit. So the combination of of like whenever he was in the studio and saw me, he was nice to me. And then also I wasn't seeing him that often and, and I was just doing my work. Uh, I was kind of okay there. And also it was really fun. You know, I mean, the hours were terrible, but, uh, you got to do lots of different stuff. And the great thing about it, it was really, like I said before, that working at Arnell group was like a, an education on so many things of like how I don't, I could never have created this, this brand without the experiences that I had working there in terms of how you craft all these different aspects of an image of a brand and, and so on. Mm. So, so that was really educational. What's a couple of examples of that then? Just things like even just typography. Um, you had to be able to lay things out very quickly. Um, you had to not just come up with one item, but think about how to, like a whole range of products and how they all fit together and how they would be presented. And like I was designing like point of purchase displays too. So it was like literally like this is how it would be in the store. This is how the box would look. This is how this, you know, so, so now I, you know, I design all my own packaging. I design all of my own products. I design all of the print ads. I, everything that in Autodromo I design. So again, it goes back to that training from working there. Yeah, it's very cool. So where did you, well, you didn't start Autodroma immediately after that. No, no. Yeah, so where'd no, you go I, after I, that? I wanted to be a furniture designer. Oh, um, interesting. I, what, I've said this what, in a previous interview, so I for, forgive me uh, people that have heard other interviews, but uh, you know, I back in college, I interned for a furniture designer called Karim Rashid, who's at the time, again, was a very famous uh, designer. A lot of people like love or hate him. A lot. I mean, I think now the majority of people, <laughs> he's, I don't know if, he was very controversial at the time, let's just say. Uh, and, Borrowing ideas and that kind of thing? Well, his style of design was very inspired by late 60s, early 70s, uh, pop and futuristic space age furniture design. And so lots of like white space and then like really like vibrant pops of color. He loved using like electric pinks and, 
you know, um, greens, like these really acid colors. And some people just thought it was just totally tasteless and crass and um, uh, de derivative. That's what the, that his detractors would say. But then there were other people that would say, well, but he's, he's making things fun, like he's doing like crazy stuff that's new and he's bringing back the spirit of the space age, which was all about the future. And he's not just um, making like boring contract furniture, which the, the, there was a lot of really like really boring contract furniture at that time. So, you know, he was like pushing a lot of envelopes and, and I think not everyone liked what he was doing, but he was very, his name was everywhere. He was very, very, it was a big deal for me to get an internship there. Um, and that really started my career off, frankly, because that was my first resume line that would open the door for a lot of different places. Sure. Um, so, so working there, he gave me one piece of advice in my exit interview because he said, well, like, what do you want to do with, you know, what's your goal? And I said, well, I would love to be, have my own studio one day like you do, you know, that's my dream is to design furniture and have my own studio. And I'm, you know, when I get out of school, I want to start doing that. And he was like, oh, Bradley, you know, you're, one day you'll have your studio, but you got to work for somebody for like 10 years. You can't just go and like start a studio like that out of school. It's, you don't, you know, you got to learn from, from other people. And I was kind of discouraged by that, but he was like 110% right. Yeah. And, and that was a, some of the best advice I ever got. And so I always appreciate that he said that um, because it's really true that when you're 23 years old, you think you know everything and you know nothing. And uh, I, I joke that like <laughs> at 25, everybody thinks they know everything only to find out at 35, you know, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> the sooner that's actually good advice for, for people in their early twenties. The sooner you understand and appreciate that, you know, nothing, the more successful you will actually be. Yeah. Because, uh, I've, I've often, I've managed a lot of interns over the years and I have to say like 23 year old men are like the worst people to manage because <laughs> they, they come out of school, they got such a huge ego, they're, they're eager to prove their, their, their chops in the world and they, they have great skills because they're, you know, freshly minted graduates or whatever and I'm talking about designers here but I think it's probably true in a lot of fields but, um, you know, they just don't want to listen to any anybody what anybody has to say it's like no 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 i know i know <laughs> and god forbid it's not in a textbook you know yeah and it, and and you're like no you don't know <laughs> but you know it it's like i, I appreciate the um the, the verve but you know it, it sometimes you just need them to just do what you ask them to do yeah 100 percent. so and I was one of those people, by the way. Not, yeah, sure. I, I was totally that guy. I'm pretty but now sure that I'm older, I, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I realize now that that was um, uh, being that headstrong person. Uh, it, it didn't necessarily help things early on. Right. But so then, how did you get Autodromo off the ground? Then, what were those years? What was that transition like? Well, so then after the Arnell Group, I went to another design firm that was much more of a product design and furniture like they, there was more of a let's just say that they actually did stuff that got made as opposed to just design des designs that were mainly pitches uh, at RNL we did a lot of pitches um, so they didn't have to like things didn't have to work you just had to be like here look at this cool thing it's like futuristic uh, and and at this other firm uh, called echo 
we were designing like more production oriented things. So then I really learned a lot about how to engineer stuff, how things are molded. Again, this was another phase of my education that I didn't have as a 23 year old, which is like, okay, now I understand the way that molds actually work, you know, what, what kind of things are makeable and, and how to also discuss them with engineers and how to win arguments with engineers and how to also sell these ideas to uh, the client. And again, those are all things that nobody teaches you in school at all, at any school, at any price, uh, is like how to deal with a client or how to deal with an engineer at the client's company. Yeah, because those aspects entail personalities on the other end too that you can't manipulate, you can't predict. Yeah, so you I mean, never know what you're gonna I've often get. thought a great college course would be where you essentially pretend to be the client and then you just like shoot down every fucking thing. Yeah, I was gonna say like, <laughs> just call it design argument 101. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and I mean, it would, it would probably like flummox the, the students so much to have the level of like kind of apathy uh, or downright you know, kind of negativity that you actually face in real life. But, you know, I think it would be character building um, <laughs> and, and, and helpful. Uh, but, you know, I don't run a college, so yeah, right. that course will never happen. <laughs> Maybe you could do that in your retirement. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just be a grumpy old man. Yeah. Oh, man, that's hilarious. No, but it's not about shooting people down, but it is about teaching people that you have to think on your feet and be able to defend your idea and describe why it will work and why it should be done and not just say, well, but it'll look cooler or like, but it's better because this, no one cares about those things. Like that's not enough. You well, and it can be so subjective too. You know? Yes. Yeah. And, and, and guess what? When it comes down to subjective things, who wins the, the client who's paying for it or you? Right. <laughs> right. So, so you have to be able to, uh, defend those decisions. And actually, one of the reasons why I love being in this position now, running my own company, is that I don't have to do those things. If I think something will be better or it will look cooler and it costs more money, I have to make my own calculus about that. But at the end of the day, I'm, I'm accountable. It's my money I'm putting on the line. And um, I'm willing to pay more money on the cost of the product if it's going to be so much cooler and so much better made. And um, that's really what, what uh, I think a lot of our customers appreciate about the watches that we make and the packaging that we make and all that stuff is that there's no cost cutting. There's no, oh, well, we'll just use this off the shelf thing. It'll be cheaper. Was like it, that, that, that kind of stuff, I really is an anathema to me. Was there a recent example that you can kind of illustrate that best with? <clears throat> sure. The box on the Inte Europa is a box that should probably be on like a $10,000 watch. And it's on a $1,250 watch, but it's like a lacquered box with a high polished finish. It has a beautifully made cloisonné badge in the middle of the lid, uh, which is hand applied. And, you know, it's... It's a beautiful, beautiful piece of packaging, and um, I'm very proud of it. And, and people immediately, when they see it, they just say, wow, look at that box. Like, it's beautiful. And, and I wanted it to be beautiful because I, all of the packaging that I do 
It's about creating the atmosphere surrounding the watch that you're about to receive or that you're about to open. So if, if you immediately start off that journey on like a cheap, crummy note, and then no matter how nice the watch is, you've already like undermined the experience when you uh, open a, a cheap looking box, no matter how nice the watch inside is. Do you find a lot of your customers continually store their watches in its box? I think uh, I try to design the boxes in such a way that they can be used like that. Like not everyone has been that way, but I, I try to make them thin enough that like you can put them in a drawer or, you know, like I don't, I hate those boxes you might see on something like a Rolex where it's like a cube the size of like a small television right. and then you open it and then like <laughs> and there's this little thing in the middle. It's I, almost, I, be, it becomes Russian dolls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I hate that <laughs> stuff. Even for the 4GT owner's watch, which is a very higher end watch, um, and it has a really sweet box, which is made out of billet aluminum, um, I still wanted it to be at a scale that you could put that on your desk if you wanted to just have that billet aluminum box and put cigars in it or whatever. Right. You could use it on your desktop and in your garage or whatever. Uh, it gives you that option. Whereas if it was some like lacquered wood box with a little key that you open it, what are you supposed to do with that? You're never gonna like put the watch back in there again. It's gonna be in your closet taking up space. Right. So I, I, and then it's like, well, what's the point? So, yeah. Uh, yeah, I do. I do try to think about the secondary life of it when I'm designing them. Well, we kind of jump forward just a tad, but what was the jump off point for Autodroma then? Sure. Like, so, when did you just did you wake up one day and be like, man, I got to start a watch company? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I did wake up one day and say, man, I really miss thinking about cars. I really miss... Um, car stuff in general, car culture. I didn't really have very many f car friends at the time. And I, I just wanted to get back to that because that was my upbringing and my, my life before. And um, so that was part of it. it was, I did wake up and say, oh, you know, I really, this is like a part of me that's missing. And uh, I actually started a blog called Automobiliac and part of the reason for the blog was to be able to write articles about cars and share pictures of cars. And I would go to, you know, Concours events and take pictures and post galleries of the pictures. You know, it was just a lot of people, like you were saying, you, you yourself had a blog like this type of thing. Right. It was kind of the thing to do at the time. And I, I actually did make some really good friends that I'm still friends with today through that, that also ran other blogs. And we're still friends now and we talk about other stuff. But... Um, that's cool. Yeah. So, so that actually started the process of me kind of getting to reconnect with that side of myself, um, of running that site and chronicling my interests and talking about, oh, like this new car, what do I think of it like, w with the design or whatever, or here's a historical thing that people should know about. What was your blog kind of, um, focused on any brand in particular? Or do no, we, was there any no, although... Thread? Alfa Romeo was the, I had, you know, one of those clouds of all the tags and they were like scaled in proportion to how many times they were mentioned. Yes. And the Alfa Romeo tag was like huge. Were you on And Blogger? then everything else was, was on Blogspot? It, it was on Squarespace. Okay. 
Oh, this is it's, early the days. The site still exists. I mean, it's still there, but it, I haven't updated it in years. Oh, but, cool. But so then after starting Automobiliac, I was getting more and more into that, into the car world again. And then I bought my first car that I had bought since I moved to New York because I was, you know, I didn't have a car for years. Which was what? It was a 83 Alpha GTV6. Sweet. And so I had that car uh, in Brooklyn and I would drive it out of the city to go for drives and, you know, go to Lime Rock or whatever. I did a few track days in the car and that was great. And then, so start now that I had been driving again and experiencing the roads around here, that was where I started getting this idea of creating a lifestyle brand that um, would, it would, the idea originally was that it would make you feel like you were driving when you were stuck in a meeting. That was like the original kernel of the idea was that you would look down at your wrist and you'd see this gauge inspired watch and you'd think, man, I can't wait to go driving this weekend. Like I love this watch. I love the, the car that, that I love thinking about driving even when I'm supposed to be doing serious things. And that was kind of the original kernel of the idea. Cool. So what was the first model you, you designed? Well, the first collection was one case design and we had a series of different dials that each had different uh, model names. So there was the Veloce, the Vallelunga, the Brescia, and then there was also the Vallelunga chronograph. And um, the Vallelunga was probably the most popular model, although the Veloce was sold really well as, as well. Uh, but those were our first few uh, models and they were, they were based on specific gauges, um, vintage car gauges, of course. And I also wanted the brand to have an Italian theme because I really love Italian cars and Italian design. So that was where the name came partly from that, but also I just like the name Autodromo. I like the word and I, it also works in many languages uh, and it just seemed right. I, I thought of other names potentially that I don't even remember now, but that name just stuck very quickly. Yeah, that's really cool. I mean, it's catchy and it's memorable yeah. too. Yeah. Um, it has auto. <laughs> yeah, it has auto in it. So and somehow uh, like the Dromo part, I think somehow weirdly th seems to relate to time and I don't know why. <laughs> Maybe it's like metronome, Dromo. Yes. I, it's like a phonetic thing. It's not like a, a meaning thing, but it, it, it just somehow it, it reminds, I've been told by people that it, it made them think of like car time somehow what was distribution like early days how were you distributing these and like advertising and that sort of thing well again going back to the topic of blogs um initially there was a, a lot of coverage in blogs uh about the watches when they first hit um most notably, of course, Hodinkee was the first post ever about Autodromo. So we launched on, on Hodinkee um, years ago. And there were quite a, there were quite a few blogs like, that, it, that wrote about us and that, that had really ad, uh, avid followers. And um, in particular, Uncrate was one site that, you know, initially when you would get posted on Uncrate, it would just be like a huge flood of orders that would just come in like that day. Wow. And it was amazing. It was like 
manna from heaven, you know, when you're starting a company and like you get a few posts on, on some sites and then immediately you're getting orders and like money's coming in and yeah. So that was really, really great. And And you had the inventory ready. Yeah, I did because this was before, so Kickstarter existed, but it, it wasn't like today. It wasn't like a huge thing. It was really more like for, for like artists and people trying to make a movie or something. It wasn't like so product focused. Mm -hmm. Um, and it wasn't plugged into a whole manufacturing ecosystem as well that today, people are sourcing things and selling things and it's all kind of like a you can almost like feed it it's almost a machine so were um, you using that no Is no it- no so i'm saying like it was before that kickstarter was really a thing so i had to fund it myself and i had to get the word out myself there was no like mechanism ready made to spread the word and get people to pre-order stuff so that you didn't have to lay out any money. So what so were the, like, um, what was your production? Like how many pieces did you have to order for? I'm assuming I you had were to shooting order, for I a had minimum, to make, right? Uh, yeah. The minimum was 500 pieces to start. Oh, the, wow. Yeah. So I started with a initial order of 500 watches and, and they, you know, they sold like pretty quickly. It wasn't like an overnight success, but I mean, it, it, sure. it, it took off, you know, and, and uh, I was able to, go down to three days a week at my job and uh, took a pay cut, but it was, at least I had time to like work on it. Sure. And, um, you know, my boss was supportive of it. I didn't tell him at all about it when I was developing it, but after it it launched, I finally told him about it and he was like happy for me, I think. So, um, yeah, uh, it was good. And then eventually after, after about six months, seven months, I, I left. I was kind of pushed out. <laughs> but uh, in what year was, was that? That was in. Well, I left in 2012, but the the brand launched in 2011. Okay, so you're nine years into this. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. What um What are some of your thoughts these days about kind of the proliferation of the micro brand? I mean, it's it's uh. I'd like to be enthusiastic about it, but I think that it's gone a little too far. I think there's too much stuff out there and it's the quality of things is all over the place. Mm-hmm. And there's plenty of new brands that are even like a year old that are good, that are being run by passionate individuals who are dedicated to good quality. And then there's just a ton of just junk right? and stuff that has no point of view, no creativity, no originality and no quality and it's competing for it's like it's like a bunch of trees competing for light and a bunch of the trees are just weeds and there's a few good trees and it's a it's a shame that that has to be the way it is uh but you know that's kind of uh, the, the new nature of the internet these days, I think, is that there's just a lot of junk out there and, and now consumers are faced with the challenge of sifting through all of it. I was just about to say now we have this momentous problem of sifting as consumers. Yeah, in the old days, the blogs were sifting through it for you and that's why when someone like, you know, uh, Gear Patrol or Uncrate posted something, it meant something that like, this is good. Like, we say this is good and then people would buy it. But now those sites, and I'm not criticizing them, they're, they're still great sites, but I'm just saying 
they they have to have content all the time and there's constant like influx of just all this new stuff constantly and i i think they still have a strong curatorial uh bent but i'm just saying that there's a lot more stuff now sure. and so and there's a lot more pressure on them because these are big sites now they're not just a guy or a couple guys like back in the day right they have a staff they have you know they have they have overhead you know there's all these other challenges that everybody's facing as we've all come up together you know the, the there's been a, a parallel growth of these websites alongside of the growth of these small independent brands that they promoted and so now there's a lot of people trying to get into that uh, space and you know it, 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 there's a pressure to post more and more stuff all the time and so again the consumer has a, a lot more choice and they have a lot more uh, it's a paradox of choice where there's just too many things and then you don't want to buy anything right and I wonder how many of those sites operate based on marketing dollars getting thrown at them, like saying, hey, we'll pay you to host us. I don't know anything about that because I've never had to do it nor been a part of it, but I wonder I, if that's... I a mean, there's certainly sponsored posts on sites. I'm not saying any specific site. Uh, right, sure. Uh, but there's plenty of sponsored posts, but I think it's not even just that. What I think it really comes down to is the traffic that has to be generated means that you need to have a lot of new stuff to talk about every single day. And so in the old days, maybe some blogger would slave for several days to write up a single watch brand. And that might be the only post that week, or maybe they did two or three posts that week. But now they've got to write up a brand daily. So then the, the net becomes much wider because you, if you're only writing about the very best of stuff, you can't just... What if there's nothing good this week? What are right. you going to write about, right? Yeah. You're going to write about the same brands as before? And then, so, I think that, you know, again, without, without casting aspersions on any specific site, and I, I know a lot of people in the field that are trying really hard, and they're, they're all honest people that are working hard, you know? But it's, it's like the game has changed because there's a pressure to have daily content that's almost hourly content, even. Right. Uh, that's new and like something that people haven't seen and so I think that's a lot of pressure that they have um, and unfortunately for us it makes our message harder to get out because there's just a lot more noise are you a watch collector but having trouble finding something cool and unique I mean the last thing you really want is what everyone else has right well this is where my friend and former standard age podcast guest Tim Jackson comes in he and his wife, Jana, own Passion Fine Jewelry in Solana Beach, California, where you'll find an incredible assortment of independent watches waiting for you in their shop and online. And if you're getting engaged, have an anniversary coming up, or simply have another reason to buy jewelry, they have you covered. Passion Fine Jewelry also employs a goldsmith on staff for any custom desires, so you're able to go that route if you so choose. Visit Passion Fine Jewelry when you find yourself in Southern California, but they're also open 24 hours a day at passionfinejewelry.com. You can also find a wealth of information through Tim's blog, independentintime.com, where he covers anything independent watchmaking related, uh, among a plethora of other information. So check that out as well. I've really enjoyed creating these podcasts on behalf of Standard H and sharing each of these personal stories with all of you. We each have goals, and it's the entrepreneurial spirit that inspired me to start the company. 
You can further support the brand and the podcast by visiting standard-h.com to pick up your choice of merchandise. And as always, thank you for listening. Lastly, if you have a moment, please rate and review the show. It makes a tremendous difference in keeping these things going. Now back to my conversation with Bradley. I feel like you sort of alluded to this answer anyway, but what would you consider um, sort of the, not ideals, but the aspects to Autodroma that set you apart from other brands? Um, I think what sets us apart, first and foremost, is just that the point of view is, is one person's point of view, first of all. So it's, it's my point of view. It's my passion. It's my aesthetic sense. And that's a special thing that I can bring to the table, I guess, um, and that se- people seem to appreciate. Um, so that's the one first thing. But also, as I alluded to before, the, the commitment to doing something special every time and not just phoning it in and to try to, you know, to create a new watch every year because we've done, every single year we've come out with a completely new watch from the ground up. Completely new with new packaging. And uh, alongside that we've relaunched, of course, different colorways of existing watches. But every November except when we did the Group B Series 2, I technically that wasn't a totally new watch, but that's the only time that we ever uh, didn't launch a completely new watch in November. Um, And the only reason, friends, for that is because I was working so hard on the 4GT watch that I just didn't have the bandwidth to develop a totally secondary watch and launch that at the same moment as I was slaving away on the owner's watch. So that's why we couldn't do a completely new watch that year. Um, But it's, um, you know, it, it, but, but every time that I'm doing this, it's, it's, uh, it's like a labor of love and, and I want it to be a special experience when you buy it and you open it that you're going to be delighted and that you're also going to really love wearing it and you're not going to get tired of it in a few months and it's not going to fall apart in a few months. It's going to, it's going to last you for years. And, and those are all really important values and I think that some brands they do make stuff that falls apart in a few months and, and or it's like it looks great in the photos and the case finishing is completely shoddy you know i'm like a real stickler for case finishing um it's if you read reviews of our products that's something that many uh very experienced watch reviewers will mention is that the case finishing is is at a very high level um and that, that comes down to the fact that I'm willing to spend the money to do the things right and not just uh, kind of slap, slap things together. What, what was the worst experience you've had with manufacturing as far as getting it right? Like, has there been a time where you've had to be like, no, like four or five times? Or like, what is that conversation like? Um, I've, I've never had to throw things away like multiple times because I, I'm very fortunate to work with some really good vendors that also have high standards and they also understand I've worked with a number of these companies for years and they know that I don't tolerate crap so they don't 
produce they don't produ- <laughs> they don't try to pull one over right like they know that i'm going to send it back and say this isn't good enough or this isn't right or can this be improved and so they they've gotten to the point where we understand each other so um that that's been great i i think the biggest challenge is um delays due to various out-of-control factors that can play havoc with your uh, launch deadlines. Um, it, it was also challenging working with Ford to to do the GT watches because, again, for the first time since my old design days, I had a, even though I'm the one paying for the watch to be made, I'm still like working essentially with a client and they have to be happy as, as well because I'm putting their name on the watch and it's being sold to their customers. So I take that very seriously, but they also have to be happy, right? So, so that was a challenge to, to make sure we were all working together and all equally happy with the product. Yeah, I would imagine it's, you know, kind of a song and dance a little bit because of, you know, if the watch is ready before the box is, you can't ship the watch without the box. And if you're Yeah, well, we delayed, had that problem. <laughs> yeah. So we've had that problem because when the Ford thing happened, uh, the, some people know this story, but especially if you ordered one of the watches, if you were one of the first people to order it, we... Uh, we, everything was going great. Everything was on schedule. And then, you know, the, the boxes for that watch, for the Ford GT consumer watch, not the owner's watch, but the one that we sell to the public for six ninety five, that box is produced in China. And it, the, uh, the, the Ford logo on the box, it caused the boxes to be stopped by customs in China uh, because they wanted to verify, because the Chinese have been standing up more to piracy than in the past. So there was a whole snafu involving getting those boxes out of China and they were, they were delayed for like, oh man, well over a month. And uh, I had to constantly bother people in Dearborn and bother people that worked for people in Dearborn that worked in Hong Kong or, and, and, oh man, it was, it was a real, real pain to deal with getting those things released by customs because they had to, I had to get Ford to like vouch for the fact that I'm like a real right. licensee. <laughs> and, and so uh, that was, um, it's a very small problem for them, let's just say. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it was a big problem for me. So, so that, was, that was a pain to, to deal with. But eventually we got the boxes out, but not, not until after we had sold like a lot of watches and Christmas was coming, so I had to like slap together a uh, temporary package to ship because I was like, I don't want to have people not have a Christmas gift. Right. You know that would suck. Yeah. So so I had to like literally using, I I, I sourced some things on Uline basically, and then printed stickers to put on them. And it was like rush packaging for the holidays, and I had to completely improvise the whole thing in about forty eight hours to try to deliver watches to people in time for Christmas because I kept waiting, hoping that those boxes were gonna be released and they didn't end up coming until I think late January. Uh, and meanwhile, we had sold like a lot of watches and a lot of those watches were bought by the way by four GT owners who are <laughs> the people that I'm trying to sell the, the, the expensive watch to. And it's like super embarrassing because now I'm like, 
coming off as like an amateur hour while we're trying, you know. <laughs> so that, that, that whole situation was probably one of the worst uh, challenges of my, of my time running this business was just dealing with that, that headache. Sure. With customs. Yeah, I'd imagine so. How did you find manufacturing early on then? Because, um, I mean, it's not like there's so many manufacturers to choose from, I would guess, for either cases or movements or whatever. Yeah, sure. Um, well, the, yeah, and, and also, I, again, going back to today, people are literally uh, sourcing stuff on Alibaba from God knows whatever factory that put up a bunch of pictures of stolen pictures of watches that they don't even make. Right. I've, I've had to have people take pictures of my stuff down from Alibaba that they're like trying to say like, Oh, we they could produce you know, it. Yeah. Like they removed my logo and then they put photos that actually the photos that I found were actually from worn and wound that they had been sort of scraped off the internet. And then some company in China was putting them on their site as like, uh, you could order this watch or that watch. Uh, with your name on it or whatever. So we had Gosh. to deal with that. That's another thing, another headache for another time. But um, yeah, so um, I went to the, the Hong Kong Watch and Clock Fair, which is held every year in uh, like September-ish, September, October. Uh, and, and I physically met with factory representatives and looked at samples of what they'd make. And compared the quality of the different factories and that's how I chose the partner that I work with. They were actually the most expensive factory that I talked to. Like when I, I would ask them like, you know, what, what would this cost? Like 500 units of this piece cost or, or whatever. And, and at first I was kind of afraid because, you know, I was launching my new company. I didn't want to break the bank. But at the end of the day, the, the, the quality was so much better, um, and I liked their approach. And so I've been with the same supplier for the entire time that we've been in business. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Because so many times, like as you scale, a lot of people are driven to find another manufacturer that could produce higher quantities. Well, actually, so we're, we're in the, ironically in the inverse position, which is that we are one of the lowest volume manufacturers that this client builds watches for but they like working with me because I challenge their engineers to do weird things that they don't have to do every day. That was my and next I have question. A, a lot of, and they told me this, they said, and you, you understand like that we make high quality products. Like you appreciate the finishing, right? Like we have clients that are just beating us up over price. Like in, and, and they, they, they don't like, they don't, they don't want to deal with people like that because they have like more work than they can handle anyway. And they want to work with clients that, that are, appreciative of what their capability is and not just trying to lower the price every every day right that's fantastic yeah so you've mentioned the 4gt stuff um you've obviously done some pretty special collaborations as a result how did that exactly come about like how did that opportunity come to fruition so what happened was that um the one day i got this um facebook message from this guy named Chris Fenson. And he, it like, and the worst part of it is it went into my like, the, you Your know, there's like, the, mail. This, this, you know, there's like the secret inbox in, in Facebook where like, it's like a spam folder essentially, but it's not obvious when you have messages there. So like things can just sit there. Um, 
And basically, like, he had sent me a message, and then I didn't even see it for, like, I don't know, two weeks or something. And uh, I looked at it, and it was like, oh, hi, I'm the design director of Ford North America, and uh, we're looking for watch partners for the Ford GT, and uh, are you interested in talking about that? And I was like, oh, my God, how did I miss this message? Oh, my God. So I immediately wrote him back and said, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm really, I go, oh, I like apologizing profusely. Uh, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean any disrespect. I, I didn't see the message. It was in my other folder. And anyway, he was really nice. And it turned out that he uh, was a customer, that he had bought a few watches of mine. Very cool. Uh, and there were a few people at Ford that were owning our, our products and um, he just like, he was just like, you know, I really like what you're doing. I think it's, it's clear that you're a real car person. You're clearly an enthusiast. And um, we're, we're talking to various companies, but I really want to throw your hat in the ring if, if you're okay with that. And I said, well, yeah, that would be great. And originally the idea was that I was just going to do the consumer watch. But then when I sent them the proposal, the design proposal for that, they really liked it. And, and at the same time, they were getting some proposals for the owner's watch that they really didn't like. And uh, they said, why don't you just give us something to present in a meeting for the owner's watch and let's see what happens. So they had the idea of having two variations yeah. to begin with. Yes, there was always the idea that there would be a high-end watch for owners of a GT that would be ideally customizable to match their car, which we can get back to that in a, in a bit because sure. that's really challenging to do. Yeah. Um, there was going to be that watch, and they were talking to like Swiss brands mainly about that. Uh, and then there was going to be the consumer watch, which is going to be sold to the general public, like fans of Ford. Uh, and that was the original thing that I was going to, just do. So in the end, I ended up getting both of the projects. And that was a, a big deal for me. It was a real honor, but it was also super challenging from a design point of view, how to design two watches at completely different disparate price points. They're talking one watch contractually. They said, we want to make it, it should be at least $10,000 price point. And the other watch should be you know, well under a thousand dollars. And so I'm like, okay, and how do I brand these so that you know people right. don't get confused that, you know, which is which? And we do have occasional confusion, but I think that they're different enough and uh the marketing is different enough that we haven't had too much trouble with that. But what um, what are some of the differences other than packaging? Oh well they're completely different watches. They are are, um, there's no components whatsoever shared between them. The, the movement for the for so, so what I did was I started with the price point. I said, okay, well, if the watch is going to be at least $10,000, what should the movement be? So that's always the first question. What is the movement going to be? Right. The movement should be something pretty damn nice. So I talked to some people, you know, like I talked to the folks at Hodinkee, I talked to the folks at Warren and Wound, et cetera, and just picked their brain a bit. Like, well, what would you like to see if you were this guy who's just bought a $500,000 car? Well, what features would you expect to see in a watch that would go with that car? And, you know, and I know a lot too, but I wanted to hear what they had to say, right? So, you know, again, we kind of settled into, well, 
it should be a flyback chronograph, racing chronograph, but with flyback and with column wheel. And so I started, you know, so I basically ended up focusing on that type of movement and, and that's a, a pretty pricey movement. And uh, the one that we use is made by La Joux Perret in Switzerland. Um, it's a Valjoux-based movement, but with a lot of uh, much higher-grade decoration, and also with the flyback mechanism, which is their mechanism, and the column wheel added. So it's really like a beautifully made movement. Awesome. Um, so that's like the heart of the watch. And then all of the other uh, things, like the case is ceramic, uh, and the hands are actually made of sapphire crystal. And that's a feature that is very, very unusual that you don't see that anywhere, really. No. Uh, hand, hour and minute hands are transparent sapphire crystal with like a sort of thin border printed on them. And then the entire dial of the watch above the color field of like the body color of the car, that whole layer is sapphire as well. And that's also made in Switzerland. So there's a lot of expensive parts in this watch. It's it was really critical for me that the customer should know that we didn't just mark up some normal watch and slap a Ford logo on it right. and tell them, hey, this is 12 grand. No, this is a watch that legitimately in a watch store would sell for more than 12 grand. If you look at the specs, this would be easily in that price range just based on what it's made of. And uh, so I wanted it to stand up to that level of scrutiny that it shouldn't, it, it, it shouldn't seem like a reach. You right. know what I mean? Um, and conversely, the, the, the GT consumer watch, it had to be of high enough quality that it, you know, it, it shouldn't look really cheap compared to the other watch, but it shouldn't be equally nice either, of course. So that, that was the, the balance that I would, was trying to strike was, was difficult. Well, I think it's obviously been successful, so. And you were going to speak about the coloring. Yeah, so the, the biggest challenge with that project, other than the whole uh, licensing side of it, <laughs> right. was the um, how do you design a watch that's meant to be assembled to order, each one individually made, to match the color spec of the customer's car, because most of, as you know, my watches are produced in larger batches of hundreds of pieces at, at once. And, you know, I design several colorways and then they just make them. This couldn't be done that way. So it required thinking about how the watch comes apart in terms of, okay, well, if the dial, the dial has to be able to be painted any color. Like we did print, we did uh, paint uh, at the factory a number of dials in the standard exterior colors of the car, but well over 25% of the GTs are extended palette colors. And I actually think it might be even higher than that now, because if you look at online, if you follow GT stuff, like every day there's a new extended palette car being delivered uh, to somebody. And so we had to be able to provide that because if the guy has a car that's you know, uh, Grabber Blue or some other crazy Ferrari or McLaren color, because a lot of people are using colors from other companies. We gotta be able to paint it. And so I designed it so the dial has no printing on it. 
so that way we can we can always paint the dial and not have to reprint the dial somehow or anything like that. That's smart. And and so all of the numbers and graphics and everything are printed on a disc of sapphire, which sits on top of the dial and creates a three-dimensional effect. And so the sapphire dials are only printed in a, in a couple of colors, but the dial is infinitely paintable, essentially. So that was one solution of how to achieve that goal. Uh, and then, of course, all the hands had to be done in, in the various brake caliper colors, because I, I always ask people what... So if they have, like, a black car with red calipers, you'd have a black dial with red subdial hands and, you know, red chronograph hands, basically. So it kind of... That little accent pop will be corresponding to that color. Yeah, very cool. Yeah. Um, another collaboration you've got cooking that I just recently heard about, and of course I can delete this if, uh, if you want me to, um, but was the Build-A-Watch for the Horological Society of New York. Oh, you heard about that. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if that's secret or not. You'd have to ask them, or I can find out for you if you want. Um, I don't believe it's secret, but... They told me about it. They so. told you about it. So, hey, but, but yeah, they let's told me talk. that it would exist. <laughs> they didn't tell me anything else. I was like, well, I'm actually talking to Bradley. So, you know, I'll ask him about it. Yeah, that was a really fun project. It's not over, like, we're still working on it, but um, it was really refreshing to do a watch. I was really honored that they approached me to do the design. Absolutely. Um, it, I'm really proud to, to do it as a. New York-based watch designer and to do it for, for the HSNY. And um, basically, the I was trying to think what, what could be a way of expressing New York in a watch without resorting to the kind of stupid, you know, tourist crap level of stuff. Big Apple. But yeah, yeah, yeah. There's an Apple that... <laughs> in the subdial. <laughs> there's a complication on the case back which is like the New Year's Eve ball dropping every second. Right. No, no it's, it's uh, the idea was that uh, to me, the most beautiful thing in New York is the Art Deco skyscraper. And um, that's also one of my favorite periods of design in general, because I, I love modernism. And to me, it also represents the most optimistic period of New York when it was literally springing into the sky every day. People were walking down the street in amazement that there are these tall buildings and like, wow, look at that. This is, this is America. This is New York. And to me, that, that is the feeling of New York that still pervades to this day is that the idea that you should be walking down the street in amazement, I think is a very New York thing. And of course, New Yorkers are jaded, but I still think that's the soul of what, what attracts people to New York is this idea of the optimism, of the possibility, of the, the grandeur. Yeah, so, I mean, as somebody yeah. who's never lived here, I completely concur. I mean, I think it's, uh, you know, there's an energy the second you get off the airplane. Yeah. Oh, that's for sure. Yeah, there is definitely an electricity in the air that you yeah. feel. Um, and so with the watch design for that, for that program, uh, I wanted something... Again, whenever I do something vintage-inspired, I don't try to make a literal copy of it. I try to take some of the essence of what I like about that object and distill it and then feed it through my own consciousness, I guess, and, and bring it out into a new thing. So with that watch, it's not a 30s watch, and it's, not, um, it's actually pretty minimal. Like, there's no numbers on the dial. It's just... 
the idea was to take a dial that's like a single piece of, of metal and then just finish it with different finishes. So there's like a, a polished part and of a chapter ring and then there's a circular brushed part and then there's a sub dial that's circular brushed. And then there's just very, very clean, simple typography for the logo. Sure. And then the hands are kind of meant to look like a shape of a skyscraper, but they're also kind of meant to look like the, the hands that you would see on one of those old elevator indicators that's like going up, you know, like you would see in the lobby of an sure. Art Deco building. Yeah. And then this, this, the case itself is a spun uh, shape with kind of horizontal bands going around the outside of the case, which again, it's a very like streamlined era kind of uh, design motif. Uh, but I was kind of inspired in general by, by Rockefeller Plaza and by the interior of Rockefeller Plaza and the kind of material finishes they have and the, the aesthetic of that building because I think it's just one of the most magnificent uh, buildings in New York. Yeah, iconic for sure. What, uh, going back to sort of the automotive influence of the brand, are there any particular standout cars that you kind of attribute to? Um, aside from the Ford GT, obviously. Uh, you mean like as far as watches that we've made? Yeah. Um, they're, they're not necessarily based on specific cars, although some the early stuff, definitely there was like specific gauges. But now I've tried to make things a bit more abstracted. So like the Group B is, is based on the gauge from the Lancia 037 rally car, not from the street version, but the actual rally car. But it's really like, I just, I wanted to take the time period of the 80s and that, um, the aesthetic of that time, as well as the actual motorsport influences of that time and try to like meld that together into one holistic design. So um, it's a combination of like making explicit reference to the past, but also kind of blurring it i don't know right. how to describe it, but it, it's like um well it should never be too literal like it, it, it like it then it then it just kills it you know so uh like the Inti Europa, it is based on gauges that you would find in chisitalia's and 1950s ferrari barquettas um there's a specific gauge that was a jumping off point for the watch um but i was trying to generally capture the feeling of 50s racing Berlinettas and um, like kind of early 50s uh, Italian uh, sporting cars. Well, I've tried to describe your product to those who don't know it because I've got a lot of friends that aren't into watches at all. And I've always just described your products as automotive influence. And it is kind of on the nose, but done better than anybody else that's <laughs> doing automotive influence stuff. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, that that's just the way that I've described it to well, people. Uh, thank you. <laughs> um, thank sure. You. Yeah, no. Um, and I mean it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Um, so as far as um, so many other watches being inspired by cars, why would you, I mean, I guess you sort of alluded to this as well, is sort of the blurred line of um, the literal derivation of these designs right like is that yeah. what you would characterize your differences as yeah i mean there's obviously i like to have um kind of easter eggs for people that are really knowledgeable that they they immediately know like oh that's from that car but it's not like 
I, did, I didn't just copy and paste the dial onto an Illustrator drawing and send it to the factory, which is right. the, like probably what some people actually do. Um, and, and, it, uh, and it always comes out terrible then. Right. Um, or it comes out kind of lifeless. And I think that you have to always be playing with like, how much detail do you add or subtract to bring the thing to where you want it to be? And um, I think the key with, with watch design in general is about the balance of negative space and detail and how many, how many busy little things you want versus not having anything. And then th those, those balances between those things is what makes a watch interesting or it makes it overwrought or it makes it too plain where it just looks cheap. Mm -hmm. So th those are the... That's where the, the kind of rubber meets the road is, is in, in making those decisions. Um, and that's, again, I think going back to your previous question, another thing that that's what sets us apart is the decisions that are made are, are really, really carefully considered. I love the idea of the Easter egg hunt. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. <laughs> I, I just, anything that can solicit a double take is what I love most. I don't know why. I just, maybe that's a little bit, that's what I tried to sort of achieve with even my logo is that like, mm -hmm. wait, what is that? Oh, Oh, that's the gear shift. You know, yeah, yeah, like that, exactly. That whole yeah, thing. Yeah, like, yeah. I love the solicitation of, of the second look, you know? Yeah, I agree. And it's also the reward of like it, when you know something that you know what that's from, or you know what that is, you're like, Oh, that's cool. And, and, or, or you can explain it to someone else and they go, Oh, I get it. Yeah. Right. And, and that, that's like what makes it a conversation piece and not just an object. A hundred percent. And, and, uh, I think that's something that, that people appreciate about the watches. Sure. Uh, this is something interesting. You had a daughter seven months ago. Yeah. What yeah. is a little baby uh, girl at home. <laughs> and, and, you know, you're, you're predominantly a one-man band, right? Yeah. So what is the work-life balance like? How do you do that? Well, I've been taking more, like, long mor mornings at home. Um, so I'll, like, just try to just do email and stay home until like more like lunchtime now and just spend time with her and with my wife and, and then, then go to work and deal with, uh, design work or orders or whatever I'm doing that day that sure. has to be done. Um, so I'm just trying to like enjoy those, those mornings more, um, just like spending that extra couple of hours at home. And, uh, it's been great. Awesome. It's been really great. So how do you approach advertising these days? Are you kind of, still relying on you know coverage by way of reaching out to folks you know or do you work with any agencies these days or like how are you going about that oh, that's a good question um i have to say that i'm currently rethinking that whole thing mm -hmm. uh i think that the biggest challenge right now is trying to tailor your your advertising to specific audiences mm -hmm. and and make sure that it reaches them um, and it's something that I'm struggling with a bit because I don't have a big I don't have an agency and I feel like and I use I do you, you may, if you've like been to my website you may see you may have seen some of our ads like you know banner ads whatever on, on Facebook or on on the web but I don't I 
I definitely do not claim to be remotely an expert in this area, and I really, really need to work harder on that because it's. I think that's like one of the challenges that we have now is now that there's so much noise, as we talked about before, how do you really reach people specifically with things that are relevant to them? And um, the, the basic tools of Facebook ads or Google ads the, at a basic level is not enough anymore because then you're, you end up just showing your ad to a lot of people that would never have been interested in, in, in the first place. So you really need to find people that can um, design campaigns for you to really like target. And I think, you know, obviously this is a big discussion these days with the politics and stuff and, and the ads that people are being micro-targeted. Sure. Those people have like the, probably the best people working for them. Uh, so I need to find one of those people. <laughs> right. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I need to do. But uh, but yeah, I I don't know. It's I I, just, I do do print ads too, but I do those more for fun than than I don't think they I don't think print ads generate sales the way that they probably did in the past. But I enjoy designing print ads and making them and putting them in in some magazines. But it, it is kind of expensive, so right. I don't yeah. do a whole lot of it. Mm-hmm. Can we talk about your Ferrari? Sure. What's the backstory? What do you have? So it's a Dino 208 GT4. And I bought it about seven years ago now. Um, it was actually on Craigslist in New Jersey. And I, um, I was actually looking for a Fiat Dino Coupe at the time. As I always, I always wanted to have that V6 Dino engine and, uh, and get a Fiat Dino. So, but I would always, whenever I would search for cars, I would use like very general terms. So I just like search for Dino and just see what comes up instead of being like Fiat Dino Coupe. <laughs> the Flintstones. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and so I searched for Dino on Craigslist in the car section. And, and lo and behold, this, this black GT4 shows up. And it was like really good price. And it was in New Jersey. And I was like, this has to be a scam. This cannot be real. There's no way this car is like available in this condition. Anyway, so I, I send an email to the address expecting to hear nothing back or to have some weird spam. So I get a reply back from this guy and he had a really weird name, which I won't repeat because for his anonymity, but it, um, he had like a very unusual name and I thought, oh, this definitely has to be shady because this, this sounds like a name someone made up. And, uh, <laughs> but like guy was totally real and he was like a super nice guy and he was an older man and he was getting rid of stuff. And One owner? No, no, the car, the car, I don't know how many owners it's had to be honest, but I know that he was probably at least the second, if not the third U.S. owner of the car, and the car was brought over sometime in the mid-80s, and it lived in the Northeast the whole time. What year is the car? 76. Got it. I have no idea how many people owned it in Italy. I know I have the original owner's name because I have the libretto from when the car was new. Like, I have all the, the papers, so I know where the car was sold originally and who owned it, but I don't know anything in between. after that. Yeah. yeah, and I don't know what the license plate number was, I don't think. I should look and see, but anyway, um, but yeah, so the car, the car was here. It had had a, a rebuilt engine 
So I was like, great, because that was my biggest fear was that I didn't have a lot of money at the time. This was like a real stretch to buy this car. But I wanted, you know, like business was starting to do well and I just wanted to get something cool. And I remember, you know, having this long email exchange with my car blog friends being like, can you believe this is real? Like, should I do it? Should I even go see it? Like, what if it's fake? You know, and they were like, no, no, just go see it, go see it. So I went and it was, it was, it was real. So, and the guy was really nice and he said, well, you, you're the first person that came here in person. You have first right of refusal. Don't rush, like take a few days, think about it. Did you do and, any like pre-purchase inspection or anything like that? Um, I did have a, a mechanic at the time who came to get it with me, but that was after I'd already agreed to buy it. And I, I basically bought it based on my own inspection of the car, which is more, I'm not like, a mechanic or anything, but I, I know what to look for, at least as far as rust and other stuff like that. And like, I brought a magnet and I went underneath on a, like way underneath it on my back. And I felt like it was reasonably sound. It didn't have any rust. And I had all the receipts Like the guy had all the receipts for all the work that had been done. And I said, well, this engine was rebuilt like 4,000 miles ago. So I, the engine's gotta be okay. Like it's not gonna blow up tomorrow. Right. So so like I knew that like the fundamentals of the car was totally fine. Amazing. And uh and I, you know, so I had when I when the guy came when my mechanic came with the trailer, he worked on it for a few months and he did all the belts, he did all the rubber stuff, the brakes, every I mean, we went through the whole car. Sure. But it was just, you know, where just wear items that were needing replacement. And it did have um an initial terrible uh electronic glitch with the ignition system oh. so it ran ter it ran really poorly at first and but then we put in electronic ignition and it was fine awesome and so it's been more and more reliable every year uh, that i've owned it really that's awesome now yeah. you is that your weekend warrior kind of thing or are you going up to lime rock with that too uh no i, I haven't i've driven it up to lime rock but i haven't i haven't driven on the track with that car um the, the V8 Ferraris, the mid-engine transverse engine Ferraris, it, you have to be a bit careful because there's an oil starvation issue that can happen in like a long corner uh, and it can really mess up the engine. So unless you really prepare the car for track use, it's not like a great idea to go like motoring around at high speed on a track in one of those cars uh, without preparing it for, for that. So no, I, I, I just drive it on the road and I drive it on back roads. And, uh, I did do my friend and I did a thousand mile rally in North Carolina oh, sweet. Uh, in the car. We Where'd did, you guys we went go? to tail of the dragon as well. Oh, like, I've never done it. It goes, it's, it's a rally called the mountain melee. Yeah. It starts in at the Greenbrier, which is in West Virginia yep. in Sulphur Springs. Yep. And you drive around North Carolina, Tennessee, West Virginia, and it's, you guys have the best roads down there. I mean, yeah, the I roads mean, are like incredible in North Carolina and that whole, that whole region, the Blue Ridge Mountains area. Well, and it's just like, beautiful. You know? It is. But I mean, like the pavement's great. Like the other drivers are courteous and they like let you buy. Southern. I mean, it, it's so great. No, and seriously, it's like, I think it's the best place in the whole country to drive. Don't say that. I know. Then, I know. Like, what's wrong with you? And I, I, I only got pulled over once. So, <laughs> so what time uh, of the year were you, did you go? Um, I, it, this is in the fall. Oh, the best. Yeah. yeah. And, um, we did like, uh, this road called the Diamondback, 
the back of the dragon. You know, there's all these named, the moonshiner. There's like all these named roads that are all, all the motorcyclists know the roads, but um, man, just incredible. They just go on and on. And, That's awesome. uh, and uh, again, the pavement's really good too. So you don't have like Northeastern potholes. Right. <laughs> or Southern California potholes. Are there um, lots of potholes in Southern California? I mean, in the, in the greater, like obviously in mm. the cities and stuff like that. I mean, the roads throughout LA are just, I mean, you need an SUV. Like, Oh, is, is that right? Wow. I mean, y- you don't, but you do. I mean, Matt Farah says that his Safari 911 is perfect for Los Angeles, if that's any indication. <laughs> okay. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I would love to get a car and do the Tale of the Dragon. I've never done it. Oh, you should do that. Yeah. It's, you know, there's a lot of things in the automotive world that are overrated or that have been talked about so much that they can't possibly live up to it. But honestly, a clear run through that road is Nirvana. It is so good, that road. Like it's so, all the cambers and the corners are so deep. You get incredible grip, like in these cambered corners. And it's literally like the car is like on rails. And uh, you can really just have explosive acceleration out of the corner because the car is so hunkered down that you're not gonna just like lose the, the rear end. So you can really like confidently just drive really fast through, the, through that road. Although it's so twisty that you never really get up to that high of a speed either. Right. So it's not- There's like over a hundred turns. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's over 200 turns. Oh, could be. yeah, I knew it was astronomical. In 11 miles. Yeah. Uh, I have like a magnet somewhere from the, of like the, from the gift shop that yeah. says like 273 <laughs> corners in 11 miles or something. Oh, that's I don't know. Cool. But it's, uh, it, it's like, um, you know, you can't go there. If you go there at the wrong time, it's going to be full of bikers. Sure. And I don't mean like sport bikers. I mean like people on Harleys driving at low speed, like we and kind of cruising. Just go, cruising along. So y- you want to go like early in the morning. And if you can go on a weekday, it's better. Sure. And, um, but like I say, you know, a clean run through there, it's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. And there are other great roads, like I say, that, that are right nearby that, that are also not as crowded. So what other cars are in your garage? So I have also uh, a Renault Alpine A110. And that car I would love to take on Tale of the Dragon someday because that would be like the perfect car to do that road in. Um, but that car is an amazing back road car. Um, and that mine is a 65, so it's a fairly early car. Uh, and then I have a, a 59 Alpha Giulietta Spider, which is uh, prepared as a race car. So that that car is road legal, and it it has all the lights and everything on it, and the horn and all that stuff. So it, I drive it to the track, and then I I run it and and drive it home. And it's been great because I, you know, I'm a very nostalgic person. And I love the past, and I love racing history and so on and and uh being able to drive that car to the track and race it is like to me it's like living history it's being able to like kind of put myself in that time period and in a small way and and i i just love using that car and and driving it sure what uh are if any are there any watches other than autodroma that you own and or wear well, I don't really wear any other watches anymore because the one day I wear like a vintage Hoyer is like the day I run into someone that wants to see one of my watches and I'm like, <laughs> I didn't wear one today. 
Uh, so I basically stopped wearing other, other watches. Uh, I, I just have a couple of things, like nothing that amazing, honestly. I have a, a Hoyer Monza and a Hoyer Pasadena. Um, and then I have um, a couple other weird eccentric little things. Like, uh, but but I, I, I wasn't like a watch collector before I started this. I bought a couple of watches to learn about watches, but I, I really came at this from a car angle and I had to learn about watches. Uh, but, you know, I, I guess for some people who are diehard watch people, they might be like, oh my God, like he's not a uh, watch collector, blah, blah, blah. But you have to understand that being a product designer, I have consistently had to learn a ton about anything I was designing. Like I've designed medical equipment. I'm not a, I'm not a doctor, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I'm not a surgeon, but I, I can design something that a surgeon would use. And it's all a matter of studying and learning. And so with watches, it's no different that I had to learn about how they're made, about how movements work, what, what movements are good and which ones are not good, which ones are relevant to what I'm making and which ones are stuff that, I, like I don't need to make a GMT, for example, like it's not really automotive related, but that's a cool movement if you're making other types of watches. Well, you've got something pretty cool on your wrist right now yeah so this is the um the group b safari and it's uh the the latest colorway version of the group b series and it's uh, entirely green so it has a green and um it basically it's a stainless steel bracelet but it's been plated with a green colored plating and the dial is also green and it has a little 80s style safari logo on it and it has a natural loom for the, the indexes. So if you picture that, uh, it's a group B with like natural loom and then just all green. So and I just thought it would be cool to do a watch that was completely monochromatic, all green. Um, don't ask me why. Just, it, just, it just felt like it would just be a really cool looking thing. I didn't want it to be like a military watch, but I just, so it's not really olive green. It's almost like an emerald green color. Uh, it has a slight iridescence to it. Yeah. Um, and then, well, yeah. so how do you code it? Is is it DLC? It, this is a plate. It's a ion plating. Oh, um, for the green, because DLC you can't do this color. I was gonna say I thought it would be sort of inhibited by color. Yeah, yeah. There's a there's a real limit to the number of colors you can do, and ion plating is one of the only ways that you can color stainless steel like in colors other than like black or gray right. um, so they can do certain colors and this green of the colors that were available uh, like I told them I wanted green and they sent me some chips and like this was like the coolest ver green that they could do so um, I really really like it and yeah, it looks uh, really good and we did a special edition box for it as well that's all green as well so <laughs> that's great yeah yeah um, do you have like a, I, I've asked other car guys, uh, their dream garage, but you can only get three cars. Ooh. What are you putting in your dream garage? And money's no object? Money's no object. <clears throat> oh man. Three cars. I would say, uh, Alpha 2.9, AC 2900, uh, would be one. I think a... 
Maserati A6 GCS coupe would be, or maybe the maybe the Roadster. I don't know. I the road the Barchetta is pretty epic. I have to say, but that would be like a a pretty amazing '50s car to have. And then the third one. I mean, the easy thing to say would be the Ferrari GTO, but I. The 288. No, the 250 GTO. Oh oh. I don't know why I just went to Well, because <laughs> you're probably thinking, well, he's got a pre-war car, a 50s car, so then the next one should be like a supercar. It would be cool to have a McLaren F1, but I, I oh, honestly, sure. I like old stuff, so although McLaren F1 is now old, but <laughs> I, I think um, either a short wheelbase Ferrari or, or a Tour de France. I can't decide between the two, but... The TDFs are gorgeous. Yeah. The TDF for me is a more beautiful design, but it's it's longer and a little more ponderous, and the short wheelbase is more modern and it's really perfectly proportioned. But somehow, maybe it's just because you see pictures of them so often, I feel like somehow the TDF now feels more special to like me. Like a sleeper. <laughs> yeah, yeah, weirdly. It's like there's too many, it's like you see the SWB too much, but I used to think hands down that the SWB was the most beautiful Ferrari ever designed. And now I'm like starting to appreciate the TDF a bit more just because there's a lot of more variations of the TDF. It's way less of a production car. Um, you know, there's like different generations of it and they all look a bit different. So not to be confused I with really, the F12 TDF. Not to be confused with that. Not to be confused with that. But I, I do like those a lot. And, um, you know, for the, the A6 GCS also, I just love. Um, actually, the you know what other car I really, really love? There's a particular, <clears throat> there's a particular uh, Zagato-bodied Ferrari 250 that is just jaw-droppingly beautiful. Um, and it's actually one of the basis for the... Um, the box of the Interopa, the color scheme is taken from that car because it's a blue car with a white roof and the interior is like a teal blue and the box is white and blue with a teal interior and it's based on that specific car, um, which I, it's just such a gorgeous car. Speaking, I, speaking yeah. of Easter eggs, that's cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's a really, really stunning car. And I love those cars because they... They weren't just beautiful, they were also high performance cars that people actually raced. So you might see these cars at like Pebble Beach now, but that car, the specific car I'm talking about was in the Copa Interropa, which is what the watch is named after. Like that, that car was raced by a gentleman racer when it was new. And I just love the intersection of like coach built car that also has high performance and can be driven anywhere basically. Yeah. I mean, I just love the idea, frankly, of just driving to the track, driving on the track and then driving home. Yeah. I just it's think an, it's, it's an best. awesome thing. Yeah. yeah. And I love the idea that, you know, you can picture these guys like driving to this beautiful hotel after the race and they're like, the car is all like covered in crap right. and yeah. the numbers are still on the side and they, just pull up there in this gorgeous, you know, Zagato body Ferrari and go to dinner and like have a great time with their friends. 
and then the next day they you know go back home or whatever and and i just think that kind of beautiful life is sort of the the fantasy you know that's that's the world that i wish i could live in <laughs> if i could go back in time <laughs> oh man so, well you know you and me both <laughs> yeah yeah i know it's just it, that was an amazing time if i mean if you had those those privileges and so on but it that would have been an amazing time period to to live in and to experience uh, as a car lover. Sure. Well, Bradley, this has been super fun, man. I really appreciate you dedicating the time. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you for dedicating the time to come up here and, and meet me. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So. Cool. Thanks so much. Thank you. All right. See ya. Okay. Big thanks goes out to Bradley one more time for having me in the office. It was a fun little getaway to get outside of New York City. And of course, I really appreciate the time. And thank you so much for racing me back to the train. As always, big shout out to Clear Audio for the headphones, as well as to Jensen Reed and Super Beautiful for the theme track. Thank you guys so much for listening. I hope everyone's doing well. Please stay tuned for another episode in two weeks time. Take care of yourselves and each other.